Good morning, church. Good to see everyone here this morning, eh? Okay, church, so today I wanted to talk about something that we all struggle with. At least some of us have struggled with. But you see, like Pastor John said, I already had an idea of what I wanted to talk about. I called Pastor and we were talking, I was like, yeah, I'm going to talk about this. And he's like, yeah, that's good, man. And then uh, yesterday, yeah, yesterday as I was getting into his word, I heard the Lord say something different. He showed me something else I had to talk about, right? And when God puts something on your heart, you know, it's because he has a message for his people. And I believe that we all need to be open and take up a humble position to receive this word. Because today, I want to talk about pride. You know, it's a hard topic to preach on, right? Because the people that need to hear about it, they're probably the ones who are mostly too proud. They don't think that it applies to them, right? They think this is, but yeah, but I think this is something that we all need to be open about to take in, okay? So just before we get into the word, I just want to ask everyone here, just to look inward, to be open and humble enough to think to yourself, maybe this message is for me. Because pride is such a sneaky sin. We live in a world that encourages us to be self-centered and focused on improving our own lives. You know, the world tells us we need to build ourselves up higher and higher. I'm sure we've all had great dreams of being successful and just improving our own lives, being so focused on our own growth. I'm sure we've all had or I've had this idea of, you know, we want to be noticed, right? Like, we all want to go down in history as someone great, someone who was remembered. Like, those are seen as normal aspirations in this world. It's encouraged to want to be great. Okay? We're told to put ourselves first and do what's best for you. But this can often lead us down a dangerous path. You know... When I preach, I like to go on a journey, right? I like to go through the Bible. So I just want everyone just to bear with me. And um, we're going to get to see how amazing God is, okay? So I want to tell a story. A few years back, I had a high school reunion, right? It was more like a catch-up. After five years, someone organized it, and we just got to see each other. But there was like this atmosphere where... Everybody's trying to show how great they're doing. You know, you're catching up with people from your high school and we're all talking about our jobs, talking about how far we've come. You know, it's a high school reunion. Everyone's trying to be impressive, right? 
And we want others to think of us highly. You see, we want to succeed and have all these nice material things. The nice house, the nice car, the fresh clothes. We want people to recognize our success. To see us and be like, wow, look at them. Look at what they're doing. Or on the other hand, we see someone else and we think, wow, I want to have what they have, right? I can admit that I've lived most of my life trying to figure out my own success story. The whole rags to riches, right? How I'm going to go out and do great things and change the world. At times, I still find myself thinking about how great life would be if I was where I wanted to be. You see, it's such a normal thing in society to have that mindset. It's so deeply embedded in the culture that we don't realize how serious this sin actually is. If I stand up here and say, I'm struggling with pride, a lot of us would just be like, nod our heads. But like, if I was up here talking about homosexuality or sexual sin, and I was like, this is something we all struggle with. Or I was like, I was at this high school reunion and we're all struggling with this, right? A lot of people would be more concerned. Like, there are certain sins that Christians seem to scrutinize more. If one of us, just keeping the comparison going, was in bondage with lust or homosexuality, there would be a lot more focus on that person. You know? But someone walking in pride, they can be a lot harder to spot. And a lot of things they do, you sort of just let it slide. Like we see someone like, oh, that guy's a bit prideful, eh? Oh, yeah, I know that guy. He loves to talk about himself, right? <laughs> you know, often we don't really take it serious until it all pops off and then some big offense happens in the church because someone's pride. But I want you to look at this example in the Bible. In Leviticus 18, verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I know a lot of us have heard that before. Moses says it is an abomination when he refers to this sexual sin. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that rabbit hole. But um, I want you to see something here. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, it says this. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces none will go unpunished. You see, the word used is an abomination. We don't want to be an abomination in front of the Lord. It goes even further in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want God as my opposition. Right? Like that's the one guy you want to have on your team, right? <laughs> on top of this, in Proverbs 18, verses 16, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Okay? So it shows us that our pride brings our own destruction. And no matter how high we build ourselves up, ultimately it's going to cause us to fall. Now I'm going to, it's going to get a lot more serious right now. Because <laughs> this sin is actually a lot bigger than we think and a lot more dangerous. You see, it puts us in a place where God opposes us. And when God humbles us, it can be a very uncomfortable process. Now you might ask, what other ways pride manifests? Pride manifests when we take the attention away from God, away from God, and we put it on ourselves. Okay? The obvious type of pride is these days everybody wants to flex. Right? For those of you who don't know what flexing is, basically it's just like you're showing off. Okay? You know, everyone wants to flex the new car they got, the new clothes they got, the new shoes. They upload photos on social media, let everyone know they're moving up in life. Right? They want to show the fruits of their hard work, but they don't want to give any glory to God. Okay? Now, on the other hand, we have a more subtle type of pride. Having self-pity and being so focused on yourself in a negative light. We sit there and focus on our flaws so much. Oh, I'm so ugly. Oh, my hair's not straight. I wish it was curly. Oh, my hair's curly. I wish it was straight. You know, looking around, my body's, my body's not good enough. It's not where I want it to be. Talk to me, counsel me, listen to my problems, right? We get so caught up in our own lives and our circumstances, like we develop this tunnel vision where all we can see is our problems and we can't even see God. I will go as far as to say that depression can be a form of pride when you're so focused on that, those negative aspects of your life. There's even something called false humility. And that's where people try to show how humble they are so that people would notice it. Right? They would say, wow, that's a humble person. In the end, it's just us deceiving ourselves and everyone else. Pride can take so many forms, but essentially the outcome is always the same, right? We take the focus away from God and we put it on ourselves. We focus on our success or our problems. We want that to be the center. It's all the same principle. And you know, so far we can see that pride is a widespread sin. I feel like nobody goes unaffected from pride. And we see how subtle it can be as well. To the point that we don't even realize how bad it actually is. We don't even realize that we have pride in our hearts. Now I want to take a step further and say, having pride makes us more like Satan than any other sin. 
I see some people like, what? I just had some dreams. I want a nice thing, but I didn't think it was that bad. Like, what? You see, based on the timeline of the Bible, pride was actually the very first sin. Before Adam and Eve even ate the fruit, the Bible tells us that Satan was cast out of heaven, right? And it was his pride which ultimately caused his demise. I want to elaborate on this to give you a clear understanding of how Satan fell. Now, if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, we can see that the Lord is talking to Satan. And he says this, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you the day you were created. We see how highly Lucifer was regarded, you know, clothed in precious gems and like these days would say, that's drip. (laughs) He was created with timbrels and pipes, the instruments which he would play in worship to God. In verse 14 it says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. This is where Satan was. He was the anointed cherub, one of the three archangels, right? It was him, Michael, and Gabriel. So when Satan fell and he took a third of his angels with him, we can see that it was all the angels under his authority, right? Because he was one of the three. It goes on in verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. He was regarded as a perfect creation. This is how highly God thought of him. Iniquity was found in him, right? Now to get a deeper understanding, we need to look at Isaiah chapter 14. Now if we look at verse 11, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. You see, Satan at the time was seated in a high seat in heaven. He was lifted up. He was known as the son of the morning. Then he was cut down from that high place. In the next few verses, this is where we see the pride which Satan had, which absorbed him and caused him to fall. He makes five statements about what he will become. Or what he will do. In verse 12 it says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. We see that the desires of Satan's heart to be high and lifted up, to be above the stars of God, to be on top of the northernmost mountain. It continues in verse 13, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You know, this is Satan. He wanted to be like the most high. It doesn't say he wanted to be the most holy or the most righteous or the most loving. He said he wanted to be like the most high. He wanted to be lifted high like God and exalted. Now, how many of us have done something kind of similar, right? A common mindset is, I'll get this job, then I will get promoted, then I will buy a house, you know? Then everyone will know I made it. Set out this life plan of how we're going to be great. It's a common mindset, right? Now from the scriptures we read, we know that God opposes the proud and that he who exalts himself will be humbled, right? So let's see how God responded to Satan. Still in Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 15, says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Okay? He was cast out of heaven and brought to the lowest place. From being so high in heaven, so close to God, from being the sun of the morning, covered in jewels, to being in the lowest depths of the pit. It doesn't get lower than that. His pride and desire to be lifted up caused his destruction. And we can see Satan used this same sin to persuade Adam and Eve into disobeying God. He told Eve, if you eat this fruit, it will make you like God. In Genesis 3 verses 16 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and here it says, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Now from here, after they took the fruit, we know that they were cast out, right? Now Adam's sin affected our position and our nature as humans. Eating that fruit, it shifted the human nature. Every person born from Adam would inherit this new fallen nature. Theologians refer to this as the Adamic nature. Now we see this nature has a trickle-down effect. It can be seen in a lot of people throughout the Bible. They want to be exalted. They want to be lifted up. And one person in particular I want to focus on today is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Nazar. <laughs> Shadrach, Nazar. <laughs> now, during the ancient time, King Nebuchadnezzar was not only at the top of his kingdom, but he was basically at the top of the world. Okay? During this time, the Babylonian Empire was stronger than all other kingdoms in the world. 
This guy's number one. You can imagine this person is the head guy in charge and he basically sees himself as a god. Right? He sees himself as someone who should be worshipped by everyone else. I'm sure you can imagine the amount of pride Nebuchadnezzar had in himself. Now to give you a little background history, the Babylonian kingdom captured the kingdom of Israel, besieged it. And in the process, King Nebuchadnezzar took some of the young Israeli men and appointed them as wise men in his um, council, right? In Daniel, 16, or in Daniel 1, 6 to 7, it says, Now from among those of the, son of, Judah, of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So there were a few times where God uses these men to, review, to reveal his power to Nebuchadnezzar, the proud king. Now in his first encounter with God, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. I'm sure some people are familiar with this story. But he has this dream and he asks all the wise men in his council to interpret his dream. But instead of telling them what his dream is, this is what he had to say. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses should be made an ash heap. We see that he's asking for an impossible task. He wants them to tell him the dream that he had. Right? And the men that were there at the time, they weren't able to do it. So Nebuchadnezzar decided, since they couldn't interpret the dream, he's going to kill them all. Like he said, cut them into pieces. So of course, the king's men came to Daniel as well. And to the other Israeli wise men. But Daniel asked the king for some time so he could seek the Lord and the Lord revealed the king's dream to him. Daniel came before the king and asked him. Or the, the king came to Dan, Daniel came before the king and the king asked him, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now the way Daniel responds to this is like powerful, right? You would think he's like, yeah, I can, I can tell you the interpretation. God gave it to me, you know what I mean? But in verse 27, he says this. The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers and the magicians, the magicians and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. So he's saying, no person alive can do what you're asking. Not the magicians, the astrologers. No one can do what you're telling them to do. But God can do it. And he can use me to do that. So Daniel explains to the king the dream he had and what it meant. The king had a dream of this great big statue. The head was made out of gold. The arms and the chest was made out of silver. The stomach and the thighs was bronze. The legs were iron and then the feet were clay. Then a stone came out and destroyed the entire statue. 
That was the king's dream. Now Daniel explained each part of the statue represented kingdoms, with Babylon being at the top, the golden head, top of all kingdoms, right? All the kingdoms that would follow him were underneath, like Rome and Persia and things like that. Now the stone represented the power of God to destroy the kingdoms of the world. Now after this, the prideful king got a revelation. And the Bible says this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets, since you could not reveal this secret. So the power of God was made real to Nebuchadnezzar. He had an encounter and he was in awe of this God, right? Now it seems like things were starting to go a bit better, right? But once again, the pride of the arrogant king took over. And Nebuchadnezzar, well, he went and built a big statue. <laughs> it was estimated to be about 90 feet, so that's like 27-ish meters, probably taller than this building. Um, and he ordered everyone in Babylon to worship the statue at an appointed time. Now, I know a lot of you are probably familiar with this story as well. But there were three guys who decided they didn't want to bow to this statue. And in Daniel chapter 3, the king's men came to the king and told him about the Jews who were not obeying. In verse 12, they said, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now how do you think the prideful king responded to this? He brings them in and he asks them to bow down in person. In verse 15 he says, If you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace and who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? Basically saying, no God is going to save you from that furnace, right? But this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had faith. Their reverence and respect for the Lord was stronger than their fear of man and their fear of death. They told the king that their God will save them, and they still refused to bow. Now, I'm sure you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar at this point. He was the king, and they disobeyed him right to his face. All right? His pride was taking a hit. And in chapter 3, verses 19, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than they usually did. You know, so he really wanted them gone, right? He ordered the strong men in the kingdom to tie them up and toss them into the furnace. Now the heat was so severe that the guys throwing them into the fire, they were killed by the heat immediately, not even the flames. 
So we can see, even before they touched the flames, they were being protected by God. These strong men were killed, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't affected. And this is where we see Nebuchadnezzar's second encounter with the power of God. Because he's watching the fire, he notices something is not quite right. The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished in verse 24. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Oh, true. True. True, (laughs) In verse 25 he says, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Funny how their clothes weren't burned, but the things tying them down were burned. You know, when the enemy tries to come against you and tries to tie you down, that's a perfect picture of the refining fire of Jesus. It burns away everything of the enemy, but you don't get harmed. You know, it's the same with us. When we go through fire, Jesus is always protecting us. And now, once again, the king's amazed by God's power. He went closer and told them to come out of the furnace with all the counselors, the wise men, they're all there. And as the men came out, there was no harm on their bodies. Their clothes were intact and they didn't even smell like smoke. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar could not deny the power of God from this encounter. And he made a new law. In verse 29 he says, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made in ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. You see, Nebuchadnezzar isn't Jewish. But we can see God keeps trying to get through to him. There's times where he sees God's power, he's amazed. But then he continues to turn back to his prideful ways. Now we're going to see it one more time. So bear with me guys. Because this is very interesting. Because Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And again he calls the wise men in. And again nobody could interpret the dream. This guy in his dreams, right? But of course, Daniel, being led by God, was able to interpret this dream as well. And Daniel tells the king the meaning of the dream and describes how God will humble this prideful king. In this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a mighty tree reaching the heavens and was seen throughout all of the earth until a heavenly voice says to cut it down and the tree is left to dwell among the oxen. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the tree is him and that he will be cut down and driven away from civilization to live among beasts for seven years until he acknowledges that the Most High is the ruler of the earth. Now, 12 months later, 
this interpretation, the prophecy was fulfilled. One day, Nebuchadnezzar is walking in the kingdom and boasting of his greatness. In Daniel 4, verses 30, it says, The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the royal dwelling of my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Scripture shows how prideful his nature was, right? And we can see similarities between Nebuchadnezzar and Satan wanting to be the most high, right? Now we saw how God responded to Satan. So how do you think he responds to Nebuchadnezzar? In verse 31 it says, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you. So seven years. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. So while the king's there bragging about everything he's done, the Lord cuts him off. The Lord declared that the kingdom will leave Nebuchadnezzar, and he will be driven out of civilization to live with wild beasts. In verse 33 it goes on. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. That very hour, right? where he's, the God declared that, we see a man who was exalted in his kingdom. His kingdom was higher than any other kingdoms. Within the hour, he lost his sanity and he lost everything to go and eat grass with oxen. You now think of that like, surely if a king's going crazy, everyone would like try and see what's going on and help him out. But within one hour, he's out on the field, right? You see, earlier we saw how Lucifer was seated up high in the heavens. And because of his pride, God humbled him and threw him to the lowest pit. And in this case, we see Nebuchadnezzar, who was the highest among men, but whose pride caused his destruction. And God humbled him and made him the lowest among men, to be wild with the beasts. In this journey of being humbled, we see a character shift in Nebuchadnezzar. Once the seven years are up, Nebuchadnezzar gains his sanity. And he sees, and he says in this verse, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. You see, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven, the Lord restores him. In verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar continues to talk about God, saying, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now this guy is 
a lot different from the Nebuchadnezzar we've been talking about, right? He's got a revelation of how, God, how great God really is right now. In verse 36 and 37, he goes on. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. So God, after Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God is the one true God, and that he's not above God, God restores him back to his position. And he says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All of those, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. Now listen to this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar switched up. Right? Isn't that amazing how God can totally shift someone to be the opposite of how they were? We see that God took probably the most prideful person to ever exist and humbled him to the point where he's now walking in the fear of the Lord. Now I hope none of us ever have to spend seven years living with wild beasts just to get the message that pride is not good. But from this example, we can see how extreme God can be when he humbles someone. And how painful the process of being humbled can be. But still, I would rather be humbled by God if it means I walk in humility rather than being stuck in a prideful mindset, in my prideful ways. So from these examples of scripture, we've learned about the reality of pride and how dangerous it is. We see that it puts us in opposition, opposition of God and makes us more like Satan. On top of that, God humbles the proud. And from the example of Nebuchadnezzar, we can see that the humbling process is not fun. So how do we identify pride in our own lives? How do we know that pride is creeping in? I told my mom I was speaking on pride. And um, she brought me this paper. Now, it shows 50 ways pride is displayed in our lives. I'm not going to go through all of them, unless you want to stay here until the evening service. <laughs> but I want to go through some of these on the list, and I've picked out five. Now, like I said before, we need to be open, examine ourselves and reflect so we can see if any of these areas in our lives is being talked about today, okay? So I'll start with number one. You struggle to receive constructive criticism. Oh. That ain't me. I love criticism. <laughs> yeah, how many people had that thought? Right? Man, criticism is so good. You know, if someone brings you something to your attention that is about you and it's not good, you feel uncomfortable. Now, 
If you cannot receive the things they say, you get easily offended. Or you start cutting them off and turning it back on them. People are like, I know that one. Now this is a sign that pride might have a foothold in your life. Number two, not being able to admit that you are wrong. Mm. See, this is something where you struggle to ask for forgiveness. You even struggle just to say sorry. Now, this might be a sign that you have pride in your life. Number three, you often compare yourself to others. Everyone's like, oh, man. You're focused on your own performance and you feel that you would have greater worth if you do well. See, you feel discouraged that you are not as good as someone else. Right? Now, this could be a sign of pride creeping in. Number four, you feel anxious and insecure. I sort of just picked the ones that I felt like related to a lot of people. So it's okay to feel like, yo, that's me. You feel anxious and insecure. You're too afraid to try new things or step into uncomfortable situations because you don't want to look like a fool. You feel like things are difficult when they're not under your control. That's a sign that pride might be taking a foothold in your life. Now this one, lastly, number five. This one hit hard. A sign of pride is when you see yourself as above doing certain tasks. Let's just say somebody at church or somebody at work asks you to do something, like mop the floor or clean the toilet. You know, if Pastor John came up to you and was like, hey, um, that toilet is a bit of a mess in there. Uh, are you able to clean it up? <laughs> How many of us would think, oh, I don't do that? Maybe we have a position or a title, some kind of educational background, and we think, nah, that's for someone lower in the ranking, all right? That's a sign that pride could be creeping in. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's common for people to struggle in each of these areas. I can tell you right now that I definitely have struggled, and often I still do. Being too proud to clean a toilet? How many of us think, nah, that's someone else's job? You know, I'm going to share about my little sister. Now, I know a lot of us, um, when you get bottles and stuff like that, you go and take it to the um, thing and you get money back. So we do, like, we have like a lot of water bottles at our house and sometimes mum will go down and like put it in the recycling thing. Now, my little sister, she gave me permission to talk about this, by the way. Now, she resents doing that. Zion, my mom will say to her, Zion, do you want to come and help me do the bottles? If she's not acting like she's asleep, then I don't know. If she does go, she's not getting out of the car. She's just there for moral support, you know? But when I bring this word to her and we're talking about it, I think she really got a revelation as well. 
<laughs> yeah, I had to get her permission. She said it's all right. But it's a clear example, like little things like that. We don't even realize, you know? Maybe you think you're too proud to go and put your bottles in the thing. <laughs> I don't need to do that. <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> Good for you. Um, yeah, but as humans, we tend to run away from humility because it goes against our Adamic nature, you know? But isn't the one we serve the most humble of all? When we look at Jesus, we see the picture of humility. Jesus was seated in the highest place in heaven, being exalted and worshipped all day and night. Yet he gave that up to come down to earth to become a human. Not just any human. He was humble from birth. He was a lowly human, being born among animals. How many people do you know that was born among animals? Even more than that, the Bible says that he came to serve us. In Matthew 20, verses 28, Jesus explains, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He came down from that heavenly place and lifted his life in, and lived his life in service to those around him, teaching them, healing them, saving them, showing them the way. We see this more in Philippians chapter two verses six. It describes Jesus. It says, "Though he was in the form of God." He did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. He didn't use his godly power to rule over humans or to be exalted. He took the form of a slave. It continues into verse eight. It says, when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, he served his whole life into the point of death, but it wasn't just an ordinary death. He experienced a humiliating death where he was ridiculed and mocked in front of all the people that loved him. All the way until his last breath. You see, he remained humble from the manger to the cross. His whole earthly existence was a service to humanity. It continues in verse 9, it says, Therefore God highly honoured him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus everyone in heaven on earth and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, this is why when we pray in the name of Jesus against the enemy, they have to bow. It says here, 
even under the earth, they have to bow. How powerful is that? The power of Jesus' is humility. In the first example, we saw Satan and how he wanted, to, wanted God's glory for himself. He wanted to be exalted like God. And when we look at Jesus, we see the opposite picture. He didn't take glory for himself. And the, any glory that was given to him, he shifted the focus back to the Father. He constantly reminds, he constantly reminds us, it's not I, but my Father in heaven. You see, we all want to go higher and higher in our relationship with God. But the way we get higher and higher is by going lower and lower. Those that try to go higher, they end up being brought down lower. You see, if I ask you, who was the most famous person to ever walk this earth? Jesus, right? And who was the most humble person to ever walk this earth? Jesus, right? Exalted in his humility. Matthew 23 verses 12 shows this. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you know what the highest position you can attain as a Christian in God's kingdom is? Now, if we look at the apostles, we can see this. In Romans 1 verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The verse tells us that he's called to be an apostle, but what is he? A servant. Philippians 1 verses 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Again, calling themselves servants. James 1 1, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Peter, in 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The highest position for a believer, the highest path that you could walk in, it's not to be a prophet to the nations or to be a pastor of a mega church with millions of people. It's just to be a servant. That's what comes first. And how great is that? That we can stand here and say, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now we're looking at these great disciples of Jesus and how they humbly took in the mantle of a servant. But they weren't always humble. There were multiple times in the Bible where they had to deal with pride as well. Their egos clashed and they fought to be the best. You can see this in the book of Mark, chapter 9. In verse 33 and 34, it talks about how the disciples of Jesus were fighting among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Fighting about who's the best. I'm better than you. <laughs> Look at all the things I've done, you know? Like, I don't know if that's prideful, but uh, in verse 35, Jesus speaks to them. It says, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now how bad do you want to be last? How bad do you want to be in a position of humility and serving everyone? How bad do you want to clean toilets? 
Pastor John, get ready. I think there's going to be a lot of people coming to you saying, hey, Pastor, I want to clean all the toilets. You see, I joke about it, but it's a real thing. And a position of humility is a place where we should all aspire to find ourselves. Now, I just want to call the worship team up. Now, just before I close today, I want to ask everyone here just to reflect on your lives. Please ask yourself, how does it match up with what we've talked about today? And if you feel like pride is something you're struggling with, I just want to invite you to bring it before God and to let go of those things that are holding you down. Because, you know, pride is such a subtle, subtle sin. And a lot of people don't really see it. It's like bad breath. Sometimes you don't know you have it. But when you talk to someone else, they notice. But usually they don't say anything. They just, hmm... So it's important to check ourselves and ask, am I proud? Is there certain areas of my life where this is speaking to me? Now I want to leave you with this last scripture. In 1 Peter 5 verse 6 it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. We only have one life. We need to shift from that mindset of thinking, I want to be great. I want to be remembered. And we need to start thinking, I want God to be exalted. I want to use my life to lift God higher. This is the way we are called to live. And sometimes we're like the disciples. We didn't get it until later. But it's never too late. Because it's an ongoing thing. Each day, we need to make the effort to seek the Lord and be conscious of our words, of our actions. I'm pretty sure everyone can agree that when you start the day with the Lord, the day goes good. we examine our hearts and ask the Lord to help us with those areas we struggle with because we can't let this sin have its way this sneaky subtle sin that you don't even realize is there you know I just want to say a quick prayer then I'm going to invite people to come up anyone who feels like pride has a foothold in your life anyone who feels like 
there's certain areas where it can cause your downfall. Anyone who feels like I'm not getting up there, that's not for me. That doesn't relate to me. I'm not trying to call everyone out here, but you're more than welcome to come up here and just receive prayer because it's something so common that everyone deals with. You don't have to sit there and pretend like I've got it all together, I'm not prideful. (laughs) But you're welcome to come up here. Understand if you want to deal with it, you and God, that's fine. I'm just going to close off in prayer. And then if you want to come up, you can come up. So we just close our eyes. Lord, Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, Father God, for the message that you wanted to bring here today. I thank you for every person who's here and who's watching, Lord, Father. I thank you that they were able to hear the message that you wanted them to hear, Lord. And I just ask them, Lord, Father God, I just ask you, Lord, Father God, to touch their minds, their hearts, and their spirit, Lord, Father. That if they need to humble themselves before you, Lord, Father God, I pray that they will come up. And Lord, Father God, I just thank you for giving me this opportunity to be your vessel, Lord. I thank you for every person in this building, Lord. Everybody who's watching online, Lord. I thank you for the plans and the purpose in their lives, Lord Father God. For using each and every one of us the way you intend us, Lord Father God. I just come against any powers, principalities trying to stop your work, Lord Father God. For the the deception, deceiving lies of the enemy telling you that you don't need to go up or focusing on your problems or your or anything in your life that's taking the focus off God Lord I just pray that you minister to that area of their lives Lord in the mighty name of Jesus Christ I pray Amen Amen